All right, if you guys want to get your Bibles out, we're going to be looking at the book of Galatians, which is towards the end of the New, well, I guess towards the middle of the New Testament, really. Um, and I, Mitch did the announcements, but I just want to reiterate, uh, this fall we're going to be kicking off a couple of things uh, as far as Maricopa Springs goes. We're going to have a fall kickoff on the 16th of September. Um, we're going to go down to that grassy patch over there, bounce houses, uh, we're going to grill out some food. Um, we've had somebody generously donate this new sound system to us, so we'll have music. It'll be awesome. You guys will love to be a part of that. Great opportunity for you to invite your friends as kind of they're getting back into the school year, that sort of thing. Um, and don't worry, we'll designate one of the bounce houses specifically for adults, so you guys will get to have some fun too. No kids allowed in that bounce house, okay? Um, and then we're going to be doing small groups again. We're going to be taking what we study on a Sunday morning and kind of opening it in a little bit more depth on a, on a Wednesday. Actually, it'll be a Thursday night. Um, a great place for you to kind of build some community and learn a little bit more about what the Bible teaches. And then we're also going to be having this next uh, kind of membership class. If you've been hanging around Maricopa Springs for a while and maybe you've helped set up or tear down, you've been serving, you've been involved in one of the small groups we've done in the past, that sort of thing, and you're looking to figure out what it kind of looks like to get involved a little bit more, what's next, um, that class is going to go through that four weeks long throughout the month of October, and uh, it'll be a really, a really great class. Another way to meet some of the people who are committed to our church, committed to the city of Maricopa, that sort of thing. Um, and it'll go over why our church does what we do, what we believe, what role you can play in, in what it is that we're doing here, that sort of thing. So really encourage you guys to be a part of that. And then before I really get into Galatians, I want to let you guys know, I was praying for you guys hard this morning. Um, you know, we don't have a very large church, so it's not that hard for me to sit down in the mornings as I'm opening God's Word and literally call to mind the faces of the people who go to our church and to be praying for you guys. Um, you know, a lot of you, I do know what's going on in life right now, and I pray specifically for those things. Some of you, I don't, and it really doesn't matter because God does. And I just want you guys to know that I do come before Him frequently in prayer for you guys specifically, and that's, that's an important part of my ministry here. And uh, if there's anything I can be praying for you for in more specificity, write it down on that contact card or come let me know. Shoot me an email. Give me a call, whatever you want to do, um, because I do want to be praying for you guys. That's important to me. So with that said, let me pray again real quick before we jump into Galatians, all right? God, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, just what a beautifully short book and uh, that offers so many opportunities for us to learn, for us to grow in wisdom, for us to see what it means to be, to be human and to be loved and to be pursued by a God who is so deeply, passionately in love with us. And Lord, I pray that as we study Galatians over the next couple of weeks, um, that your word would really come alive to us, that it would change us, that it would shape us, that it would cause us to pursue Jesus more, to love him more, and, and to be just enthralled with who he is. And it's in your name we pray that. Amen. All right. Book of Galatians, if you guys want to turn there. Um, I want to, we're actually going to spend the next couple of months going through Galatians. It's only six chapters long, but I really want to kind of get into some of the meat of it here um, because it's, a, it's an important book. Um, I want to dig into it and learn uh, how it fits in with who Jesus is and, uh, and, and why it would be a significant book, so much so that God would include it in his word. So... Uh, let's start. I'm going to throw it up on the screens. <clears throat> um, let's start with verse 1. Paul, an apostle. And I'm actually just going to stop right there. Okay, we didn't make it very far. Um, who was Paul? Who was Paul? 
If you've hung around a church casually, you've probably heard that name thrown out there several times. Uh, if you've stuck around church for a while, you know that he was an apostle called by Jesus himself. Um, he wasn't one of the 12 apostles. He was not one of the original 12 disciples who hung out with Jesus. But his, uh, his conversion didn't actually take place until after Jesus died and, and was resurrected. Um, but Paul was an apostle called by Christ himself. We're going to get into that in more detail here in a minute. Paul's birth name, however, was actually Saul, after the first king of Israel from the Old Testament, Saul. And uh, it's a name that has uh, kind of displays his Jewish heritage, right? He was named after a king of Israel, the first king of Israel. And Paul, or Saul, was in fact a Jew. Um, and not just by birth or family lineage, although he was that. He talks about in Philippians 3, 5, he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Essentially, I'm a Jew of Jews. I am the prototypical Jew. You can't be more Jewish than I am. He mentions he's from the tribe of Benjamin specifically. And although he was actually a Roman citizen, raised in the city of Tarsus, quite a ways away from kind of the home turf of the Jews in Jerusalem, uh, he was every ounce a Jew. Like I said, you do not get more Jewish than Paul was. As a young man, he studied under the Jewish rabbi Gamaliel, who was a reading, leading rabbi of his day. It'd sort of be like saying that you, uh, you were mentored by um, uh, Billy Graham. You know, everybody's heard that name, right? Billy Graham. Even if you don't know who he is, you've probably heard his name. He, was, uh, he studied under Gamaliel, the leading rabbi of his day in Jewish orthodoxy. And it seems that Paul was one of his best students. He excelled in upholding Jewish orthodoxy. One of his best and his brightest. And he was so zealous and so passionate about his Hebrew faith, about the Jewish faith, this faith in the one true God of Israel as the only God, that he actually made a career out of destroying the fledgling Christian church shortly after its birth, shortly after Jesus died and was resurrected. That was his whole purpose in life, was to travel from town to town. His job, his mission, travel from town to town under the authority of the Jewish religious leaders of that day, even having the authority of the Roman Empire, to root out Christian believers, root out followers of Jesus, so they could be persecuted, imprisoned, and even killed for their faith in Christ, for what he believed was a heretical view of the God of the Old Testament, that God would come in the form of a man named Jesus, die this humiliating death on the cross, claim to be raised again from death because he was in fact God. Paul, Saul, believed that was heresy. And you have to understand how offensive this idea of, of Jesus being God would have been for a Jew. There was one God and one God alone. He dwelt in unapproachable splendor. I shared this story with, uh, with our students in the student ministry this last week, or maybe it was two weeks ago, that uh, when the priest would enter the temple in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement, he would go into the Holy of Holies, the most reserved place in the temple where he was only supposed to enter one time a year. And he would wear this robe that had bells on it. And he would have a rope tied around his waist. Because if he came into the presence of God and he wasn't worthy to be there, he would fall down dead. And they would hear the bell jingle and they would drag the rope out. Okay? God, the, the Jews believed that God dwelt in unapproachable glory, splendor. 
ruling over heaven and earth, over all things. And the fact that Christians claimed that Jesus was in fact God, who would lay aside his glory to reach humanity, it was so contemptuous to them. I mean, truly despicable. And Paul was so passionate about upholding God's glory. Saul, that the only thing he thought appropriate to do was to imprison, kill, or, uh, or persecute Christians for this offensive view of God. That's how crazy it was for him to encounter Christians who said that God had come and dwelt among man. And Saul had developed this whole network of people across the known a Roman Empire at that point. They worked for him. They had given him authority from the highest courts to travel around, imprison Christians, persecute them, and even kill them for their faith. And all of that changed for Saul one fateful day as he traveled to the city of Damascus. Maybe you've heard this story before, maybe not. Um, see, Saul never met Jesus during his earthly ministry. Saul never met Jesus face to face while Jesus was alive before he was crucified. But he did have this miraculous encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. While riding his donkey on the road to Damascus, suddenly Paul was surrounded by this overwhelmingly bright light. So overwhelming was the experience, and it wasn't an alien abduction. He, he flew off of his donkey onto the ground. He was blinded, I mean literally knocked down in the presence of this light. And he and the men traveling with him suddenly heard this voice, although there was nobody present. And the voice said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, why are you persecuting my name? And Saul is just dumbfounded, has no idea what's going on. He can't see, he doesn't recognize the voice. He has no idea who's saying this to him, whose presence he's in. And he responds and he says, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And I think it's interesting that he adds, the, he adds the word Lord here. Paul is so overwhelmed by the power of this encounter. And he's so convinced by the authority that it holds that he knows immediately whoever it is that he's speaking to is clearly a person of incredible power. Someone to be respected and revered. He uses that term, Lord. Who are you? And the voice responds and says, I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. It's me. It's my church. It's God, the one true I am, who you're persecuting. And Jesus gives Saul, we don't have a response from Saul at that point, but Jesus says to Saul, go into Damascus and look for a man there named Ananias who will restore your sight. And Saul obeys, right? And you would too. You're blinded, knocked off your donkey, totally confused. And you hear this voice that says, it's me that you're persecuting. And all of a sudden, your world is turned upside down. He obeys. And for three days, he can't see. He fasts. He doesn't consume a single piece of food. And at the end of those three days, Ananias comes to him, sent by Jesus, restores his sight, and confirms to Saul that he's to be God's chosen instrument to bring the message of salvation through Christ to non-Jews and Jews alike. And again, for Paul... This must have been a totally world-changing event, a radically new chapter in what it meant for the Jews to be God's chosen people, a new identity for them that Saul actually embraces. 
Why does he embrace it? This man who was so passionately consumed with defending the honor and the name of the one true God of Israel, why does he embrace it? Because it's so apparent to him in this encounter on the road to Damascus that the God that he has been persecuting, Jesus, is in fact the God that he has also worshipped his whole life. And Saul's life changed forever. So much so, he even changes his name from Saul, a Jewish name, to Paul, which is actually a Greek name. And it was a tiny thing for him to change his name, but it had huge meaning. See, uh, Jews believed that they were God's chosen people and that God's favor rested on them alone. That you could only experience God's favor in this life if you were a Jew or you lived among the Jews. But when Saul took on this Greek name, Paul, and he began to be called by that name, what he was doing was affirming the message of God's grace through Christ, through his death and resurrection, for all people. Regardless of whether you were Jewish or not, God's redemption in the person of Christ was available to you. And so what's interesting is Paul actually becomes the heretic that he had worked so hard to destroy. And he believed in this message that salvation comes through Christ alone. It's an unbelievable transformation. And he ends up giving the entire rest of his life to accomplishing this mission, to take the message of salvation to the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, if you've ever heard that word before. And he does it even more passionately than he had ever worked to persecute Christians. One of the things that I absolutely love about Paul uh, is that the meaning of his name in Greek It's actually the Greek word paulos. It means little. Little. And if you read the New Testament, which is largely written by Paul through the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you see that Paul was no small man spiritually. I mean, he was anything but little when it came to authority in Christ. He was a spiritual giant. I mean, that's why even 2,000 years later, if you hang around church, you're going to hear people drop the name, well, Paul said, well, Paul said, Who's Paul? It's like Jesus, right? God used a little man like Paul to accomplish this huge work of founding his global church. And his name meant little. And it makes me think of this verse in 1 Corinthians where it says, I love this verse, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And I love that verse. It gives me so much hope for this church and what God's doing here. It really does. I've said before, I have no idea how to start a church. I've read lots of books about it, and I still have no idea how to start a church. I don't know what I'm doing here, and I don't mind admitting that. And here's why I don't mind admitting that. Because God uses the foolish and the weak and the low things in this world to accomplish his purposes. So that undeniably, at the end, when his purposes have been accomplished, it is clear without a shadow of a doubt that the great things that happened for the kingdom of God were done because of God working in the lives and hearts of people. By his will, by his power, and not by man's power. Not by anything that we do. It's not because Grady is a great leader of Maricopa Springs or a wonderful visionary or a stellar preacher or that he has any talent at all. It's 
so that everyone who sees the power of God at work in this world is going to worship and glorify Jesus for who he is and what he's accomplished. Isn't that an incredible reality? You can see why it gives me so much hope. You know, the church is never going to be great. Our church, Maricopa Springs, is never going to be great because we have great worship or great leadership or great facilities or even great volunteers, even though I do hope we have all of those things and I believe we have all of those things. Our church is going to be great because God is going to use the little things, the little people in this world, like he used little Paul to accomplish and proclaim the glory of Christ, the hope of the truth of the gospel through his death and resurrection on the cross. God uses the foolish, the low, to accomplish his will, again, so that it's undeniably clear that he pulled it off, that it was God who did these things. And I want to say to you guys, I believe, I believe as I've been praying for you, God wants to use your life to accomplish great things. Maybe you've written yourself off. Maybe somebody else wrote you off. Maybe you feel like this world has just abused and beaten you down. Maybe you don't think you have the talent, the courage, or enough of the Holy Spirit to pull it off. But I believe God wants to use you to accomplish great things in this life. Not for your glory. Not so that you can be revered and worshipped. Not so that you're great. But so that it's clear just how great Jesus is. And I hope you guys will step into that. You know, if you want to know why I so desperately desire for you to be a part of the vision of this church, it's not for any other reason than I want you, like Paul, to be blinded knocked off your donkey in this encounter with who Christ is. That he would enter into your world in such a powerful way that you would have no response but to say, who are you? And to hear him say, it's me, it's Jesus. And I have a plan for you. I have a purpose for you. I have transformation that I expect you to go through for my kingdom and for my glory. Guys, it's all about Jesus. It really is. It's all about you following Jesus. That's all that it's about. And it's about this church existing to point people to Jesus. We serve no other purpose than that. To point people to Christ. That's what we've been called here to do. That's what we're going to do. That's that's what we are doing. And by the grace of God, nobody or nothing is going to keep us from that mission. Nobody. I don't care if half the people in Maricopa move out of town. We're going to pursue this vision and this mission because that's what God has called us to do. And you're going to see exactly how important it is that we dig deeper, that 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 mission is as we dig deeper in Galatians. Back to Paul. little sidetrack. Paul, an apostle. Okay, let's stop there again for a second. So Paul was not an apostle in the sense that he was one of the 12 disciples. We need to make that clear. But he did meet the risen Lord face to face in a truly powerful encounter. And he was given a specific calling by Christ himself to go and plant churches that would reach out to people far from God and bring them the message of grace and forgiveness through Christ. That was his mission and his calling. So he tells us in the next part where his apostolic authority comes from. 
where his authority to carry out that mission to go and to be sent comes from. Read it with me. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. What we're going to see as we study Galatians is that Paul is actually picking a fight. In this book, he comes to the table throwing it down, and he's picking a fight. He's picking a fight with these false teachers who have worked their way into the church to spread a dangerous and false gospel. And it's important for him, before he gets to the crux of the argument and starts laying on the one-two punches, it's important for him to remind his readers that he comes to this conversation, this fight, with the very authority of Jesus himself. If he's wearing boxing gloves, he's throwing a couple cans of soda in there just to lay on the extra punch, right? It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the authority of God himself. And nobody else who might stand up in the churches in the region of Galatia can make that kind of claim. Not a single one of the false teachers has that kind of power or calling on their life like Paul had. Now, I believe with all of my heart that I've been called here to Maricopa Springs to lead this church, to do ministry here in the city of Maricopa, called to build this church, to proclaim the good news of Jesus, and to protect the bride of Christ from false teachers, from dissension. But in no way would I be willing to stand up here and dare to make a claim like Paul makes saying that my apostolic authority, my authority in the church, comes from a divine revelation of Christ. I believe it comes from the authority of God. I believe he's called me. But I would not stand up here and tell you, I was driving one day down 347, and I had this vision, and I had to pull over, and I heard God say to me, Grady, go to Maricopa and be my apostle. That's not how it happened for me. Okay. What I'm getting at is that we don't have apostles any longer like we did at the founding of the New Testament church. People today may have the gift of apostleship, which really is the gift and the calling to go to different areas and plant churches. I do not have that gift. I want to start one church and one church alone. I don't want to do this again. (laughs) I mean that in the best way possible. (laughs) I love it. But, man, you got to have a calling. I'll tell you that. But... What I'm getting at is that if you're ever in a place where you hear somebody claim that they've been called by Jesus as his apostle, make sure you fact check what they say by what the Bible says, because more than likely you're in the presence of a heretic. And there have been a lot of cults, a lot of divisions within Christianity that have started by people claiming to have the same kind of apostolic authority that Paul had. And we just don't have that any longer. God's purpose was to start his church and to raise up leaders, and he did that through the apostles. And so be careful. Guard your heart against people who might claim that kind of thing. And we're going to get into that in more detail as we get further in Galatians. Suffice it to say, nobody in the Galatian churches can counter Paul's claim at apostolic authority, coming directly from Jesus himself through divine revelation. Nobody else can say that. Okay? His calling is not merely from man, not merely by man's authority. And he brings out the big guns, Paul does, and he assures his listeners that what he tells them carries weight far beyond whatever his opponents might tell them because he received it directly from Jesus in a miraculous way. And then he ends his credentials by saying, and all the brothers who are with me. 
This really is a small phrase, but it's key. Paul's goal as an apostle of Jesus is to bring unity to the church, to establish the church and bring unity to the church, to remind those that follow Jesus that the most important thing is Jesus. That's it. And he says that he's with the brothers, which really what he's getting at is is a subtle way of reminding the churches in Galatia, Galatia that Jesus brings unity and brotherhood to his church. Brothers are family. And actually, the word is a delphoi. It means brothers and sisters. It's a neuter word. Brothers and sisters, they're family. And the best expression of a family is unity, love, and friendship. And Paul's suggesting that if there's a division in the church, then the church has lost sight of its one true goal, to love and serve and follow Jesus, to stay true to his teaching and his glory alone. There cannot be division in the church. We can't accept it. We cannot tolerate it. Brotherhood is the goal. And they're all united as family under the purpose of worshiping and proclaiming Christ crucified and risen. That's what he's saying there. All right, now who's he talking to? The churches in Galatia. Uh, Galatia would be the middle section of modern Turkey today. If modern Turkey is like this, it's like the slice in the middle here, okay? Some of you just got hungry. You're like, man, a sandwich sounds really good right now. Um, It's this vast expanse of land kind of between the Mediterranean Sea and the Black Sea, okay? And Paul isn't writing to one church specifically. He's writing to a number of churches who all need to hear a very similar message. And it's important for us to understand, too, that Paul actually started these churches. During his life and ministry, Paul took three separate missionary journeys across a vast portion of the Roman Empire, And he would stay in certain areas, sometimes, you know, for years, sometimes for weeks. You can read about these trips in the book of Acts. I'd encourage you to do that at some point while we work through Galatians. But he traveled from city to city, living with people. Sometimes he would get a job while he was there, talking to people and ultimately telling people about Jesus and welcoming them into the Christian faith. And he planted dozens of churches in dozens of cities, and then he moved on and he planted more. That gift of apostleship that, again, I do not have. And he was a man with a single-minded focus to tell the whole world about the grace of God through Christ. That was his goal. He gave his entire life to it. And if you read the New Testament, he tells you some of the stories of what he went through for the sake of the name of Christ, and it's truly incredible. Now, several of the churches that he established were in the region of Galatia. And while writing this letter... He's somewhere else on one of his other missionary journeys, and he's caught word that somehow the churches that he planted have begun to believe a gospel different from the one that he told them. Next week, we're going to get into what that is in detail. The point is that Paul is addressing his spiritual children. These are people he cares about deeply. He loves them. He knows them. He spent years of his life investing in them. He lived with them. He shared the good news of Jesus with them. These are people who, for Paul, must have felt like family. They were like, literally, his brothers and sisters. Which is why he starts the next part, the next portion of his greeting, with such a warm and friendly tone. He says, grace to you. Grace not only because he cares about them, but as we're going to learn, grace because that's the idea that they're beginning to stray from. 
That's the idea that they're beginning to lose sight of. Right here, guys, if you learn nothing else from this morning, right here is the thesis of Paul's letter. It's also his first point, his second point, his third point, and his conclusion. Grace to you. Grace. We're going to title this series Grace in Galatia, which I actually stole from a ridiculously boring commentary, but it's a great title. Grace in Galatia. Paul wants the church that he started in Galatia to remember grace. Remember grace. Grace through Jesus in his death and resurrection. Grace that Jesus paid the price of sin on their behalf. Grace because there's no other gospel besides grace. Nothing else is important to Paul besides grace through Christ. It's all about Jesus and it's all about grace. So from the very beginning, Paul's reminding them grace. So what is grace? Let's get into that for a second. And again, guys, please hear this. It's so important. Because grace is what Christianity is all about. It sits at the very heart of what it is we believe and why we think it's so significant. Grace is the idea that you don't have to be lonely. Grace is the idea that you don't have to suffer your way through life. Grace is the idea that God is good and that although humanity stinks, there's hope. There's hope. Grace is salvation from sin, from death, from misery, from destruction. Not through any human means. Not through the accumulation of wealth or good works. Not through knowing the right people. Not through politics. Not through any human means, but only through the cross of Christ. Grace is the idea, guys, that God himself, being so impossibly passionate about his creation, so impossibly passionate about his love for humankind, came and lived a perfectly sinless life through the person of Jesus Christ, died a sinner's death, although he had done nothing wrong, so that we might be reconciled to God. That's what grace is. Guys, this is why Christianity is so beautiful to me. It's what sets it apart from everything else. Because it's not about you. It's not about what you can accomplish or what you can do. It's not about me. It's about Jesus freely giving his life on the cross that we might have a relationship with God once again. That we might be restored and reconciled with him. So that things might eventually be one day the way that they were truly meant to be. The way that God intended them to be as he lives in relationship with us. So that we could have forgiveness of sins and experience eternal life. Grace means that the punishment that should have been reserved for us was taken by Jesus himself. And instead of punishment, what do we receive? We receive forgiveness. God's favor, his love, compassion, kindness. That's what we get instead of the cross. And so everything that's wrong with our lives and this world was replaced by good through Jesus and his death on the cross. How profound of a reality is that? If you want to know why I'm so passionate about doing this, why I would do this if there was only one person sitting here, It's because of that idea. 
that we wait until the final fulfillment of that reality. It's not going to happen in this life in full. But for those of us who've placed our hope in Jesus, it's already in process. It's loading. That eternal life is loading as we speak. And guys, I pray this morning that if you don't know God's grace, I pray that you would open your heart to him. You would consider it. Seriously. That you'd hear the words of Jesus as he whispered his love and said, even as he bled to death on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, even as they put me to death innocently. And I plead with you to consider grace. Please. Like Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. And I love how Paul contrasts the goodness and peace and grace of God through Christ with the reality of our present evil age. It's hard for me to comprehend personally, but there are some people out there who stubbornly believe in the inherent goodness of man, and they're wrong. Yes, man is good in the sense that we reflect God, but we've had at least four centuries to work this stuff out, and we can't get it together. We still kill each other. We still steal from each other. We squabble, we bicker, we hate. Four centuries. If we can't do it in four centuries... Are we ever going to be able to do it? I mean, some believe that humanity is progressing. I believe we're regressing. Look around you. We still have prisons and courtrooms and nuclear warheads for all of our best efforts to get rid of them. Plain and simple, guys, we live in in an evil age. And if you don't believe it, look around you. Even if if you're not convinced that it's in yourself, (laughs) I know you feel it in other people. Um, I don't know who told me this, but I heard this week that China now, in an effort at further population control, has mandatory abortions. And it works like this. You're allowed to have one child. If you somehow get pregnant, they'll let you have the second child as long as you pay a hefty tax. If you haven't paid that tax by the time that child is due, they come to your house, they drag you to the hospital, and they abort that child with or without your permission. Your consent is irrelevant. They will kill the child whether you want to have the child or not. Even if you could come up with a loan at that point, it's too late. They're going to abort your child without your permission. Another story from this week. The FBI just took down a massive child prostitution and pornography ring. 57 cities across the U.S., This is in the U.S., guys. This is in Bangkok, Thailand, where we hear about this kind of thing. This is is Phoenix, potentially. This is your backyard. 79 children, some as young as 11 years old, and over 100 different people arrested, keeping these children in slavery. It happened in America, where we're civilized, where we're evolved, where we've progressed, where we have the world's best court system, where we're compassionate. It happened right here. We live in an evil age. Humanity is broken. That's why grace is so important because that's not the climax of the story. It's only the backdrop. 
The true story is the story of God redeeming this evil age through grace in Christ, our Lord. It's not the climax. The climax is Christ crucified and risen. Who, Paul says, according to the will of our God and Father, died to redeem you and me. What a great God we serve that instead of just erasing the whiteboard and starting all over again, he devised an even more glorious plan to redeem the creation that was so precious in his eyes. He doesn't desire that anyone should perish. He desires that all should come to him. And the plan for redemption was sacrificed by himself for our behalf. And so Paul begins this letter with his authority to speak the words of God, to rescue the churches of Galatia from false teachers by the grace of God in the glory of Christ. And that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Jesus. No other gospel but Jesus. No other Lord to be worshipped but Jesus. Nobody else to receive the glory but Jesus. And in him being glorified is our true joy. Jesus alone, because he's capable of redeeming humanity in a way that we can never do ourselves. So what's the point for us? What's the take home? Sometimes I wonder if talking about Jesus is, is uh, talking about Jesus so much is impractical. You know, maybe we should do a family series. Maybe we should do a financial series. Maybe we should do a series on relationships or a series that talks about what the Bible says about your career or your aspirations or your character. Maybe we should do a series on compassionate living. Uh, those things all may be nice, and we've done some of them, and we probably will do some of them again. But the truth is, if you really want to know how to get your life together, it's Jesus. That's it. It's Jesus. You want to know why your marriage is the way that it is? It's because you don't love Jesus like you should. He's not at the heart of it. You want to know why your finances are a mess? It's because you don't honor Jesus with your money. You want to know why you feel lonely or depressed or sad or angry or overwhelmed or anxious? It's because you don't trust Jesus. You don't spend enough time with him. You want to know why you don't have a compassionate heart? Why your character lacks? It's because you don't love Jesus. Paul's going to spend six chapters of Galatians reminding the churches of Galatia that there's no other gospel besides Jesus. You can't add anything to it. You can't take anything away from it that could possibly make it better. It's simply all about Jesus. He's the answer, seriously. And it sounds like an oversimplification, but the reality of it is everything else is an oversimplification. If your sin is really as bad and as tragic as I've claimed it is this morning, then chicken soup for the soul is not going to solve your problem. That's an oversimplification. You need Jesus, who is powerful, the power of the Almighty God. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the Bible says, the beginning and the end, the one who has no beginning and has no end. He's the power of salvation for all who believe. So what's the point? Like Paul says in the opening verses of his letter to the churches in Galatia, he says, grace to you 
and peace through Jesus Christ from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he begins the letter. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that we wouldn't leave here this morning thinking that this is just some stupid cliche to talk about Jesus like this. Because, Lord, it's true. It's all about Jesus. There may be some details we need to work out and what it looks like to pursue him and to love him more. But, God, I pray that you would whisper to our hearts and remind us that it truly is all about Jesus. He is our hope and our salvation. He is the one through whom we can restore relationships. He is the one through whom there is hope. God, I pray that we would believe with all of our hearts that it is only about Jesus, that we would worship him and glorify him and come to understand that through glory in the name of Christ, we find our deepest and most significant joy. God, I pray that you would answer the prayers of our hearts this morning by giving us more of Jesus. And it's him that we turn to in worship now. And it's in his powerful name that we pray. Amen.